first off, thanks again for joining. I'm Sam Kessler. I'm a technology reporter here at Coindesk. I'll be moderating the space today. We've got a bunch of really um, incredible guests who I'm pumped uh, are joining us. So obviously, we're having this space against the context um, of FTX and its implosion, explosion, um, whatever you want to call it. It has been for a tech reporter, for a crypto reporter, the craziest couple of news weeks I've ever experienced professionally. It's insane. The most recent thing, um, and this is kind of what we'll start with in terms of a recap that's happened, is we've seen an affidavit from the new CEO of FTX since they filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. So this is somebody who actually led the restructuring of Enron. And he said, and you might have seen this already in this affidavit, quote, unquote, never in my career have I seen such a complete failure of corporate controls and such a complete absence of trustworthy financial information as occurred here. From compromised systems integrity and faulty regulatory oversight abroad to the concentration of control in the hands of a very small group of inexperienced, unsophisticated, and potentially compromised individuals, this situation is unprecedented. So that unprecedented situation is what we're going to talk about today. I'm excited to introduce um, our guests. So first off, um, I'll, I'll start with some of our Coindesk reporters. Like I said, I'm Sam Kessler, a tech reporter. I'm joined um, uh, by by uh, Tracy here, um, who is our um, deputy managing editor of companies, um, broke some of the stories that you've seen over the past week, namely um, the one about the polycule. So if you've got questions about that, maybe we can take some of those in the end. Um, we've got Cheyenne here, who's our U.S. regulatory reporter. Um, and then we've got um, uh, some awesome guests. So we have Eric Vore, he's the founder of Shapeshift. We've got Sunny, the co-founder of Osmosis Labs. Chango um, from Interchain FM, who's a builder in the Cosmos ecosystem. And we've got Haseeb, managing partner at Dragonfly. Um, most of these folks um, won't need introductions, but um, glad to have them here. So to start out, um, I, I actually have a question um, uh, for, for Sunny. Um, maybe we can talk a little bit, um, just jump straight into things about the, the, the meat of today's space, which is around the difference between centralized exchanges and decentralized exchanges. So you run Osmosis, which is a decentralized exchange and blockchain on the Cosmos ecosystem. Can you talk about what some of the intrinsic advantages are, in your view, of decentralized exchanges relative to centralized exchanges like FTX? Why couldn't FTX have happened in a centralized, um, in a decentralized context? Hey, uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, it's uh, The space is funny because i you know i think it started where chango like retweeted this like old like tw- tw- twitter space on like video stream that from like two years ago or something and i kind of forgot that that space happened it was like me eric sbf and suzu and it was kind of like this like uh it, it was also a like centralized exchange versus dex debate and i feel like at the time uh you know take uh centralized exchange as well spf and suzu were like we don't really see that happening and uh well i guess we see which two of us are still standing right now um uh uh, but no so like okay this whole idea like i remember like you know the one thing so, so the whole idea here is that like there was no transparency in the system you know what i always tell people is the entire point of DeFi, I think can be summed down into like one sentence, which is transparent, trans- privacy for the individual, transparency for the system. So, you know, the whole point of what we're doing with like 
cryptocurrencies and cryptography is making tools that cryptography on its own gives ways of giving uh, individuals privacy, right? You can have, you know, you don't want anyone to be able to look into your balances or uh, see what your financial transactions are. But the purpose of combining that cryptography with public ledgers is you want transparency on certain aspects of the system. Uh, you want to make sure that, you know, money isn't being printed out of thin air, or you want to make sure that, uh, you know, all the rules of how a system is supposed to act are being followed. And the, you know, you had basic original systems like payment systems like Bitcoin, which provided these like strict set of rules for how to build a currency. But, you know, now we're able to take those and make them more expansive. And, you know, we can have we can take all almost all the rules that an exchange does an exchange really is like, you know, two people making atomic payments to each other, you know, I'm sending you one asset, and you're sending me back another asset. And we can encode those in the rules of, uh, of a blockchain and make sure those are happening in a transparent way, and allow everyone to still always maintain custody of their tokens. What happened in the FTX situation was, you know, people just sent money to uh, the centralized entity who custodies their coins. And there's no transparency into knowing what are those people doing with your coins under the hood. Meanwhile, with DeFi, you know, the only people who can trigger actions on behalf of your coins are yourself or anyone that you, you know, explicitly authorize to do certain actions. And so that's like the base idea is like, hey, how can we make these rules more transparent and enforceable uh not based off of trust now um thanks sonny that's a um really useful overview and and one of the things that we've seen come up in the centralized exchange space recently is this idea of proof of reserves uh this uh, group of you know principles that people are starting to I guess, uh, adhere to um, uh, an instrument in their own exchanges to, to prove theoretically that their reserves actually hold the amount of currency that they're supposed to hold according to what they've told customers. So I, I, Eric, I actually saw that you retweeted something today kind of questioning, I think it was from Jordy from Delphi, um, questioning how this proof of reserve model works and whether it's actually a sufficient way of holding these centralized exchanges to account. I, I, I wonder if you're able to kind of, um, if you're willing to talk a little bit about why proof of reserves might not be a you know, perfect mechanism for accountability. Sure, okay. So uh, first, I don't wanna poo-poo proof of reserves. I think that is a fantastic model, practice, set of standards that needs to be adopted. Um, its main problem is that no one has adopted it yet. There are, to my knowledge, are no major exchanges that are really doing proof of reserves uh, holistically and continually. I think some have done like um, periodic snapshots, which is better than nothing, but um, the industry and meaning users really need to start demanding this and hopefully the FTX collapse will help push people toward demanding that. But um, yeah, it's not perfect. And the thing I, retweeted today was actually an interesting point that I hadn't considered before, which is that even if you get proof of reserves you, from a centralized exchange, you can't really get proof of liabilities. And this is a profound point, right? So 
who cares if FTX has a billion dollars of Bitcoin if you don't know what their obligations are? Um, and to the degree that a centralized exchange has financial obligations to other counterparties that's not on chain, um, proof of reserves is really only like half half useful. So while I absolutely want to see the industry move toward that, it's definitely not a panacea. And more importantly, DeFi is like a step beyond that. It, it's proving reserves in all times, constantly, 24-7, even on Christmas. And there are no liabilities that the system doesn't know about either. So it's proving um, both assets and liabilities in real time, all the time, 24-7. How, how are regulators not applauding this grand invention? Um, I don't know, but we have the tools to fix these problems and we just need to use them. You have like, um, you know, you do have proof of liabilities happening on chain. You have like protocols like Compound and Aave where there are liabilities that exist on the chain because, you know, inevitably people are taking leverage even on in DeFi. You know, it's not leverage isn't something that's isolated only to to CeFi, but all the leverage is happening in a very transparent way. Everyone can see, hey, this is the total liabilities of the compound protocol or the Aave protocol. And everyone can like act and make decisions based off of this public information. And that's why DeFi was able to, you know, liquidate people much faster. People were able to price in risk much faster when you have this public information. The other point I want to make is that it's not clear that if FTX, let's say that they were commingling user funds between FTX, the exchange and Alameda, the trading firm, um, what Proof of Reserves shows is that you have control over the funds. Um, if there was this corridor, and again, we don't know all the details quite yet, um, it's possible they could have passed a Proof of Reserves even while they were commingling funds between Alameda and FTX. So I think Sunny is absolutely right. The nature of those agreements, the nature of the liabilities is spelled out on chain in code. Whereas for any centralized exchange, there's always some element of trust me. And the trust me is that, no, there aren't off-balance sheet liabilities. No, this is not being commingled, commingled with another entity that has control over this stuff. And you can always ask the question, you know, when Binance is showing you their proof of reserves, is that Binance or is that CZ's money that he has unilateral control over? Um, that, 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 that's somewhat opaque. And it, look, it's an important step forward. And I think it's extremely valuable to have proof of reserves incrementally relative to what we had before, which was literally just trust me. And I don't even need to prove that, I, that anybody has the money. Um, but that's not enough to stop what happened at FTX. Yeah, but it's worth mentioning that like proof of reserves is not some new thing. Like we were talking about this stuff 10 years ago with Mt. Gox and um, the industry just never really adopted it. It never became a thing. And we've really moved beyond it. So as cool as proof of reserves is, and as much as I would still like to see it happen and become standard, DeFi is just a step function improvement and transparency over that whole system. On the DeFi, just just to play a little bit of a dev, devil's advocate, um, the narrative that like you know DeFi will solve all of the problems of centralized systems. Um, you, you guys made some great points, but um, I think it's important to acknowledge that like you know DeFi also poses its own set of unique risks. Like you know, do you want to get rugged by a fraudulent centralized exchange or, or get rugged by like the North Koreans? I don't know. It kind of it kind of seems to me like you know it's a little bit of a pick your pick your poison. And so, I mean, we've seen also uh, with the mango hack, like like DeFi is not foolproof either. And so I was wondering if you guys can also address, maybe maybe let's go with Eric, um, some of the problems with DeFi as well. 
Yeah. First of all, no one should be going around saying that DeFi is a panacea, that DeFi has no problems or no risks. Anyone saying that is a charlatan and you should walk the other direction. Um, the difference is that in DeFi, everything is open source and visible to the public and operates according to how the code is written. And the code can be read by anyone. So the, the degree of transparency is, is just like profoundly higher than a centralized exchange. With a centralized exchange, there are humans involved in how it's operating at any given level. On DeFi, there are no humans involved, just the, just the code. Now, where the risk is, of course, is if the code is written badly. And we've certainly seen plenty of examples where DeFi contracts were written badly. But those are mistakes that can be corrected with better code. And as code sits in the wild, you can be increasingly confident in its performance. And you never have to trust you know, the, the operators of anything. You never have to trust human subjectivity. Whereas with centralized exchanges, you always have to trust human subjectivity. One of the other things that I'm curious about is like whether DeFi poses extra risks in terms of making people like the, I, I, it's not only the, the dialogue around it, but it's just at the core of these products. They are technically more transparent. But one of the things that we saw with, for example, FTX and Alameda was that they held a disproportionate amount of the token supply of certain tokens, which um, and it's not just limited to this case. It, it theoretically offered them the ability to manipulate markets and so on. So I'm curious if you know, that is more of an issue in a decentralized context. Um, is that transparency actually applicable when we're talking about market manipulations, when people over time are going to get more and more sophisticated, able to spread their holdings between different wallets, obscure their holdings, so on and so forth? Um, kind of a broad question, but um, I don't know. Eric, I saw you on mute for a I'd second. I'd say the, the risk of something like FTT is borne by the holders of of FTT. And if people are owning that asset, then they should be understanding what it is, who controls it, to what degree can it be created or destroyed? What controls um, do the parties that uh, created it have? Um, those are issues with that specific token. But if you're taking any specific token in the context of centralized exchanges or decentralized exchanges, it's always going to be more transparent in the latter because everything is on chain and everything happens according to code versus being in a centralized opaque database that nobody but insiders can access and subject to the subjective whims of people. Yeah, I think FTX, again, is a big example of this. You know, as we, as we just established in the affidavit, Sam had basically 90% of every single entity in the empire. Uh, he had total unilateral control, and that's one of the things that the, the liquidator was lamenting, is how there was just no oversight. There were no checks on anything. Now, it's certainly true that in DeFi, Yes, there are tokens that have high concentration of certain holders. Most of those tokens are small. That's not uncommon for startups either to have the vast majority of their ownership be in a few people. Uh, but DeFi, it's, I think it's important to underscore this. DeFi is not a monolith any more than CeFi is a monolith. There are many different protocols in DeFi and they have different properties and different uh, distributions of ownership among them. So what you're talking about with respect to something like a Uniswap uh, is going to look very different for something like a Serum or something that's even smaller than than, than Sarah even was. Um, and so I think there's there's a range to these things. And it, if you're talking about what is the possibility for manipulation, the possibility for you know a governance attack, which seems to be, Sam, what you're alluding to, um, it looks very, very different for something like a Uniswap versus you know some, some, some random startup on Polygon. The same thing is true, of course, for uh, centralized exchanges. It's also about to what degree do you have control over it? Um, because 
in DeFi, you have full control uh, over your assets. And, you know, if something gets hacked, well, you know, it was on you. But then if your money was on FTX and you had no insight into how it was run or um, like what was on its balance sheets, it's completely out of your control. And it arguably wasn't your fault. So it's a difference between um, trusting someone else for that or trusting yourself. Yeah. So in, in, in all of these like financial protocols, right, there's like different types of risk, right? You know, you have things like you have your code risk, you have the mechanism risk, you have parameterization risk, you have human risk. So like, you know, code risk, yeah, definitely exists on both DeFi and CeFi, right? Like, you know, you have smart contracts that get hacked, but you also have centralized exchanges that get hacked. You know, it seems like FTX seems to have gotten hacked or you have Bitfinex and, you know, all these like, play, you know, exchange centralized exchanges that also had code related hacks as well you have mechanism risk right you have like terra which was a you know a DeFi protocol but that was like a mechanism risk right you know DeFi doesn't suddenly get solve all mechanism problems a badly designed mechanism will fail regardless uh you have parameterization risks right so you know part of this ftx situation was a parameterization issue as well uh or at least you know maybe that's they're claiming it was that like ftt was designated as way too high uh, valuable as a collateral than it should have been and that's the same thing that we saw in the mango case as well and mango they decided to put their own token as like premier collateral which it really shouldn't have been and so you know i think that's actually one thing that DeFi needs to get better at is going through these like governance processes of how to properly parameterize their protocols and you know there there there's like a range of proto different types of protocols in DeFi, right some that are like relatively very governance lists while others are require more active governance like lending protocols and so you know i think there's been a shift in crypto in DeFi over the last few years of trying to move things you know we had this like peak where everyone was trying to make these governance tokens to build value for their things uh but now we're, we're, i think we're starting to see a, a more shift back towards like governance minimized protocols as much as possible and so um yeah so i think there's like DeFi definitely has a lot of space to go but i think the key thing that it does is it stops it it handles the human risks where you know you don't have to trust a human is going to run away with your money at the very least we're also talking about the differences between uh DeFi and CeFi, but then i noticed there's a lot of you know skirting of blame by the politicians because if you look at ftx the offshore entity that one went insolvent but ftx the u.s entity was actually well capitalized so, you know, we have Elizabeth Warren who's saying, well, you know, we need greater oversight into this, like, crew of anarchists. But in reality, th this, this outcome happened because bad regulation pushed exchanges offshore and for people to just, like, go in jurisdictions where it is the Wild West. Whereas if you look at Coinbase, um, they, they're fine. So I, I think there is some conversation to be had about the responsibility of you know po politicians to actually figure out a positive framework and not just like put it on to us and then say that we're a bunch of anarchists and we're at fault now look at look at everything that's happened i think do we actually know that ftx us was well capitalized because they also had to 
you know, declare bankruptcy no, they, with the rest. They did also file for bankruptcy. That's right. Yeah. Um, so I think I, 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 your your point's well taken. Um, uh, yeah, but but I think that it's hard to say that the entire thing wasn't, you know, going under uh, for whatever reason. But I, uh, one one question, like when we talk about some of the risks of DeFi and Sunny and Chango, by the way, thank you for joining us. You you were you know a big part of getting this whole group together. Um, so for both of you, um, you, you have a big role within the Cosmos ecosystem. At the core of that ecosystem for a long time, and still to some degree, was Terra and their UST stablecoin, which until recently and until it blew up was the stablecoin and as uh, in Cosmos. And as we all know now, it collapsed and fell to zero. And part of the reason why it was able to get so big, I, I don't think it's controversial to say, is that many um, you know figures within the Cosmos community, specifically Terra folks, but also beyond it, either promoted that token or sat back despite um, and, and let it spiral out of control despite knowing its risks. Everybody that I talk to now says in retrospect, they knew it was risky. But anyway, I, I'm curious as, you know, core figures in this community, whether leadership bears some responsibility to communicate the risks of these protocols to people better, even though they are just experiments and everything's transparent on chain. People did lose a ton of money. I, I so you, you it's you can't put the blame on leaders in Cosmos for things that fail within its ecosystem. Same same thing as you can't same reason why you can't blame Vitalik for like some of the scams or you know like NFT rug pulls that that were built on the Ethereum blockchain. Um, the, you know that being said, I believe like Sunny was vocal about the um, like poor mechanism design. Uh, underlying UST, you know, I was as well, but um, like less, less explicit. Um, I did do an interview with Do Kwan where I asked him the hard questions and he did answer them um, in a very straightforward manner. And it was, it's left to the listeners to really draw their own conclusions, you know, anything more than that. And you're, uh, you're, yeah, I guess, I guess you're ruining relationships with people that you, you were close with. That's the dynamic there. So I would actually argue that, like, I feel like maybe we didn't do enough in Cosmos to be, like, letting governance be more opinionated on things. So on Osmosis, how, you know, UST and Luna became uh, two of the biggest assets uh, on, on, the, on the decks. And, you know, Osmosis has this, like, liquidity incentives program, and it was funneling a large portion of the incentives towards UST and Luna. And part of the problem there actually was that, you know, the incent liquidity incentives mechanism that we used was one that like favored it, you know, it, it looked at the assets on, on the decks that brought in the most trading volume and it drove liquidity incentives to those pairs in order to build up liquidity for the pairs that brought the most volume. And so if anything, I would say actually part of the reason UST and Luna became so prevalent within the rest of the Cosmos ecosystem was actually because, you know, it was overly unopinionated and was just like, you know, oh, OK, these two assets are bringing volume because they were popular assets. Let's fund. Let's let's uh, channel more liquidity towards those assets. And I, so I think one of the things that uh, Osmosis governance has realized since then is that it actually needs to be more opinionated on things. So, you know, there, it, you know, we've been bringing, 
it, liquidity incentives are like being used right now to like you know make sure we have a diverse set of stable coins rather than going all in on any one stable coin again or making sure we have um you know a enough liquidity with paired with other major assets not all dependent on one asset like you know for a long time Osmo, cosmos ecosystem liquidity was very much central um centered around atom but you know, we're kind of starting to move away from that because we don't want to be dependent on any one asset as like the primary uh, liquidity on an off ramp into the ecosystem. So I think we're, 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 we're working on, I think governance has realized we have to be more opinionated than, than we were before. The other I'll, thing is, oh yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I'll, I'll point out that um, like in Luna's case, it wasn't, the failure wasn't a failure of code uh, the failure wasn't a, a bug. It wasn't like a bad actor. It wasn't a hack. It was a mechanism that didn't withstand the scrutiny of being in the marketplace. And sometimes you have to just let mechanisms try to operate in the marketplace and see if they fail. You know, like it's it's easy to say in hindsight that, oh, I, everyone should have just um, tried to exile Luna or, or downplay it, et cetera. Um, and that's easy in hindsight, but a lot of ideas look stupid. And the only way you actually can tell if they're successful or not is you let them operate in the wild and you see what happens. And where this is hard is that when they fail, they cause a lot of damage. And what we should be advocating for is for people to realize that all of this stuff is really risky. Like this is risky financial technology out on the frontier. And what the hell are you doing buying Luna when you don't understand that there's a risky mechanism underlying the stablecoin peg, right? Like that's a, that's a personal responsibility issue. Um, so I don't I don't think this is really like something where people should have been voting it off of a off of a platform. Although if they think it's that bad, they should they should make their voices heard. Um, we just have to have like a tolerance for failure, and and to balance that out, we need to be always advocating personal responsibility and telling people that these are really risky things. Be careful, and even those people who know a lot about them often often fail and get hurt. There were two things that could have been done to mitigate the Luna collapse. And one was personal responsibility, as in just don't put your life savings in UST to chase that 20% yield. Uh, the other thing was, I still go back to the <clears throat> unsecured lenders. You know, it was just, DeFi was all about competing on um, APY um, in the last cycle. And so you just, protocols constantly have to outcompete each other to a point where uh, we had, you know, Ohm and Ohm forks that were promising a thousand percent APY, and it was just so scandalous. Um, it, it, and people were institutions were loaning out money for for um, like really cheap. So that I think that lent um, to the explosion, you know, the over leveraging of the entire system, which we never had before. So that didn't help that money was cheap to get it, get your hands on. And, you know, people just like took that and put it in, put their life savings into UST. I actually, so I'm going to give like a little bit of a hot, maybe cancelable uh, take on Terra here. Uh, Hasib and I have talked about this a bunch, but I'm actually publishing a blog post about this. Uh, probably should come out either today or tomorrow because it's actually like the six month anniversary of the Terra collapse. But I actually think the Terra situation terra never got tested properly you know the terra had like an experiment that they were trying to do which is you know 
their whole thing was like they I think they always knew their their collateralization mechanism was like bonkers. But the their whole claim was that no, the what keeps currencies stable is that they have real organic demand behind them. And their goal was to build a real organic economy around this that drives demand for the UST stablecoin. And they tried doing that for a while. You know, they had this payment stuff that they were doing. They had like real DeFi protocols. Um, and then at some point they got greedy and built this scam called Anchor, which like promised people guaranteed risk-free 20% yields um, on stable coins. And what it did was it created a shit ton of inorganic demand that as soon as things get shaky, everyone went running from the door. There was no, there was no real back. The, the idea is real demand is supposed to act like a backstop. And that just wasn't the case uh, because 80% of the, of the UST in existence was all just chasing that 20% yield on anchor. So, you know, I, I actually will say that I don't think Terra mechanism on its own was a Ponzi. I do think Terra plus anchor together was most definitely a Ponzi. And so, I don't know, for me, I'm a little bit sad about the class. You know, people, I, I've heard a lot of people saying this week that like, oh, you know, they've never been, this is like the most demotivated they've been since they joined crypto and like are working, you know, with this whole FTX collapse and everything. And I'm like, really? This, I've actually been more invigorated than ever. This is just like more reason why we need DeFi. Um, the Terra collapse for me was a bit sadder because it was like, hey, here's like one of the few legitimate attempts of trying to make an actually decentralized money. And its collapse, I think, just like pushed back the ability to, you know, create stable decentralized money by probably a few years at very least. Yeah, here's uh, sorry, sorry, I want to move on past uh, past Luna Terra, where we're here to talk about FTX. But but I, pre I really do appreciate your insights. Um, let's, let's get back to the topic at hand. And Eric, I wanted to ask you a question about just crypto regulation. And, um, and Sam, so you debated Sam on on Bankless, um, in a very now infamous uh, interview. And it seems like you were widely praised. Um, knowing what you know now about FTX and what's kind of become of the situation and also Sam's comments yesterday where, where he actually told a journalist, F the regulators, um, is there anything that like, you know, if you could go back to that uh, debate and really drill home a point or do you feel like, you know, everything he said during that debate was just a lie? Like, what are your thoughts? <laughs> so many thoughts. Um, ironically, his statement yesterday may be the only reasonable thing he said in the last few weeks. It was weird to hear him say that after he, you know, had made a show of how important it was to be engaging with these regulators and to, um, you know, beg them for regulatory clarity and all this. Um, it, I mean, to, to those who don't know, Sam was involved in, uh, in talking with various regulators and there are so many of them. Um, talking with them and, and like helping them craft regulations that would apply not only to centralized exchanges, but also apparently to DeFi. And it's that latter part which got such, which drew such ire, rightly so, from the community, and which was the subject of much of our much of our debate. Um, and it was so frustrating because he he had this air of um, like, oh, you, Eric, you're such an idealist. You're, you're not a pragmatist. Of course, we need good regulations. 
And um, we're going to make that happen. And I'm the one doing all the hard work in Washington to make that so. And meanwhile, he's running like the greatest scam in crypto history. And I just, I, I wish people could like see that the law of how code executes is regulation. If you want finance to be regulated, you should want the hard immutable law of decentralized smart, smart contract code. It's knowable. It is completely objective. It has no bias to it. And it operates exactly as written. If you, if you like regulation, you should see that as something like magical and mystical and something that is just so amazing. And yet, we, even though we have DeFi and we have immutable contract code that can govern how finance works in a transparent and fair way, they still insist on bearing down with hundreds of pages of written regulation, a technology you know from hundreds of years ago, which always has to get filtered through the subjective behaviors of the people actually executing it. FTX was a regulated entity. FTX US was a regulated entity. Basically, every exchange centralized that has failed has been regulated by some regulatory body somewhere. They, they just fail, and people keep appealing to them like some kind of god on high. And I wish people would just wake up and start using the technology that's in front of them that does a much better job. Well, I want to I want to push back against that, actually. Um, so, I, obviously, Eric, I agree with you on the broad strokes that uh, re regulation is not magic. Uh, DeFi is also not magic. Right? Like there have been failures in DeFi, there have been failures in centralized exchanges, and that will continue until the end of time. Because obviously all of these things, whether they're centralized exchanges or decentralized exchanges, they're all made of code. They're all made of software. And they're all, um, for every single one of them, there are human beings somewhere or another at the helm. They may be in multi-sigs, they may be you know, delegates in governance, they may be uh, you know, board members, they may be something else. Um, I think the, what's, what's so interesting about Sam's response in that Vox article where he sort of took the mask off and started <laughs> very, very sort of Joker energy that seemed to come out when he was was very honest. The most interesting thing that he said was that um, he thought consumer protection was bullshit, that there was no real consumer protection going on uh, from from these regulators. And I think that's I think that's it's a good point. Uh, I think I think he's right about that. I think that's something that I think both Eric and I would agree with. Um, but I think the there's still that question of okay, well, how do you stop the next FTX? How do you stop the next mango markets? How do you stop these things from happening? It's one thing to say that, um, you know, we, we, we think that, you know, decentralized code is its own auditor, it's its, its own regulator, and uh, it is self-enforcing in a certain way. Um, but it's also true that DeFi today is still way too difficult and way too impenetrable for the vast majority of users who use centralized exchanges today. The users for centralized exchanges are in the hundreds of millions. The users for DeFi are probably in the, you know, high single-digit millions, maybe 10 million, roughly something in that ballpark. Um, and I think it's it, right now we're nowhere near bridging that gap. Um, now, it's not just about consumer protection in order to bridge that gap. It's also about UX. It's also about scalability. Um, but I, I think there are really hard questions for which crypto right now doesn't have an answer to, and we need an answer if we want to be able to tell regulators, hey, back off, we got this. I, I think DeFi, DeFi is absolutely the answer. The fact that some people haven't learned how to use it is on them, frankly. Mm -hmm. And even though it's only 10 million people today, that was the entire crypto industry five years ago. So it is it is growing fast. It is growing really mm -hmm. fast. And if you if you use an average DeFi app today, a lot of people don't even realize that it's DeFi. Some of this stuff gets super easy. If you're just using like MetaMask and Aave, 
like, frankly, that's easier than using a bank wire and having to drive down to the bank and spend like an hour, you know, talking with some teller down there. The fact that people aren't used to that behavior is just a process of learning. I think um, if I can um, move to another question, I'm sorry, Sonny, um, and feel free to chime in on this one. But uh, Eric, you, you just raised an interesting point about how some users um, are, are using products without realizing that they're DeFi. And I think last cycle, the last season, I guess, uh, of crypto, we saw a lot of people using platforms that they thought were DeFi, but were not actually DeFi. And I wonder if anybody here thinks that there's some place for regulation or why there isn't a place for regulation to define what decentralization actually is. To give a more concrete example, you know, there's very centralized platforms that kind of wielded the the the, the DeFi moniker like Celsius. Then there's clearly decentralized platforms like Uniswap and Aave that you just mentioned, Eric. But then there's these things that are a little bit in between. Um, DYDX comes to mind where they call themselves a hybrid decentralized exchange where they need to maintain some centralization, apparently in order to process upgrades, in order to maintain their order book, yada, yada, yada. So should there be regulations defining what is actually decentralized in order to bring DeFi to the fore? That, that, that's exactly my point, is that there's a spectrum to all these things, right? It is not enough to say that, okay, well, the smart contract is on chain and therefore this thing is self-enforcing and therefore blah, 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 right? There's DeFi that basically is controlled by a single admin key. There's DeFi that's controlled by a multisig. There's DeFi that has some centralized server that is necessary in order to keep the exchange or to keep the product uh, live and to allow any withdrawals to be facilitated at all. And so there's, there's nothing intrinsic about having a smart contract on chain that makes something trustless, quote unquote, as, as we like to use in, in crypto, um, there's, there's, there's a spectrum. Now, there's obviously things like Aave and Uniswap for which basically we're, they're beyond the pale of the idea that you need to depend on anybody. And I think Osmosis is also in that category. Um, but a lot of things in DeFi, especially when you start talking about displacing some of the things that exist in centralized finance, like uncollateralized lending, or you know, the most obvious thing is just fiat on-ramps. These are things for which we don't really have a good answer yet in DeFi, especially not for the, the most traded product in crypto, which is derivatives. The, the all, almost all of the derivatives volumes are on centralized exchanges because right now we don't have a way to do these things at scale on DeFi in the volumes that are, need to be facilitated to, to keep crypto markets functioning. Um, you all make really good points about you know, what crypto needs to do better. And in light of this giant FTX blow up, uh, like, what do you think is the wake-up call that the industry needs? Um, it seems like the only way people really learn lessons is is through, you know, extreme pain, getting rugged. And even, you know, after that, I think crypto as an industry maybe has like, what is it, uh, you know, the memory of a goldfish with a concussion. Um, so, like, are you optimistic that this FTX blow up will be a lesson or do you think you know we have seen exchanges centralized exchanges rug people over and over again ftx is just the largest of the scale and um you know in in 10 years we'll be you know reading headlines about another centralized exchange blowing up yeah it's not going to take 10 years for another centralized exchange to blow up i'll, I'll bet money on that one i think the goldfish problem is is not that the entire industry keeps forgetting the same lesson. It's that the industry is growing. The people that learned the lesson in Gox didn't end up getting rugged in subsequent exchanges. The people that are in FTX, I mean, th those are people largely that saw an advertisement on the last Super Bowl and joined crypto like in the last year. 
that, that's a typical customer for FTX. Um, it is tragic that they're going to have to learn that, that lesson now. I hope most of them learn the right lesson and become a little more diligent in what they do. The whole idea that people should be diligent and responsible with their money is sort of alien in modern society. But once you move power and sovereignty of money back into the hands of people, it's a lesson that people need to learn, just like they need to learn how to drive a car uh, responsibly. So, um, yeah, a lot of the a lot of the people here will learn this lesson. Some of them won't. A lot of people will get scared out of the industry. They'll come back as soon as the prices go up again, because that's what they always do. And in the meantime, the core group of people who are building things um, continue to work on really cool technology, and it keeps getting better and better and better. Like previous cycles, we didn't even have alternatives to centralized exchanges. So when someone said, well, what do we do about this problem? There was the proof of reserves suggestion, but there wasn't really anything beyond that. Now we actually have DeFi. Now we have DEXs that are doing billions of dollars in volume. So the, the progress is very, very clear. But if you look at you know just the, the new entrance to the market, they're going to be making a lot of the same mistakes all over again, which is really sad. Yeah, the problem is with the decades of training TradFi has given to people, which is this idea that you shouldn't custody your own money. You should allow somebody else to do that for you, somebody else that you perceive as being better at managing your money than you are. So it's about sort of getting people to unlearn that lesson and being comfortable with um, managing their own assets. Like in reality, if you look at the UX differences between signing on for um, a centralized exchange versus on DeFi, it's like not that different. It's like not as cumbersome as a lot of people think. It's just that, you know, it's the, it's the scary thought in their head that, you know, I um, am bad at managing my own money. And if I lose my money, then, um, then that's it. Instead, you know, I want to call 1-800, you know, FTX or whatever to get my money back. But, you know, so if FTX were actually forthcoming about what they were actually doing and say, okay, well, I'm going to take your money, uh, I'm going to loan it out, and there's a 20% chance that you're not going to get your money back. No one's going to do that, um, you know, but they don't say that, and people are going to go ahead keep and to keep believing that um, something like FTX or, you know, like a bank is going to be good custodians of their money. So that's just a thing that people need to unlearn. If I can quickly go back um, to the previous topic about regulation, and this is just a you know, an informational question. I'm sure some people in the audience have it too, but many of the articles that I've read about this situation, Eric, I think you mentioned this, Asib, you might've mentioned this. Um, Eric, you definitely did. Uh, they reference this idea that SBF was cozy with regulators and therefore was carving out preferential treatment for centralized exchanges in general relative to DeFi, if not, you know, SBF specifically. Can somebody are articulate to me uh, as a tech reporter, not a regulatory reporter, what those carve outs actually are. How materially would SBF be benefiting himself and centralized entities over decentralized entities? Eric, I see you unmuted. Yeah, I think the, the main trick that was being played was um, inviting or, or permitting or tolerating the idea that front end websites for decentralized protocols should be licensed. And the reason that's a big deal is because today, if you go to, you know, FTX or Coinbase, you have to go through this whole compliance surveillance nonsense. Um, and a lot of people don't like that for very good reasons. Uh, you go to 
Ave, you click connect your wallet and you're suddenly there. Um, that's, that's way smoother. But if, if the front end for Ave required you to go through a licensing process, first of all, most front ends for Ave wouldn't exist because, you know, a 22 year old kid is not going to spin up a hundred thousand dollar legal fee just to do the initial analysis to see if they can get a license, let alone set up a, you know, million dollar a year compliance program just to operate the license. It completely changes the, the competitive nature of, um, of websites. And so it seemed like what Sam was doing was inviting in um, licensure for front ends for decentralized protocols. And he was saying, you know, like, I don't want to do that, but I'll tolerate it as long as we get good, good legislation through. And um, I didn't, I didn't see him as such a villain when we had that debate. Like I was trying to give him the benefit of the doubt um, that he just didn't realize how reckless that was. But it's, I, I feel a little more reasonable now to, to not give him that benefit of the doubt and, and to say, okay, well, his main competitor is DeFi over time. And so he was trying to get out ahead of that and put up roadblocks and friction on those competitors. Yeah, I really I mean, liked your um, email example, Eric, uh, which is this idea. I mean, so Sam's argument is that, um, you know, protocols can be permissionless and open source, totally fine. Uh, but the front end should be licensed because X, Y, Z. And you posed the analogy of, you know, OK, email protocol. If the um, if, if regulators license the front ends like, you know, gmail.com on um, the web UI for accessing email, would email have gained the adoption that it did today? Um, and, you know, he was basically lost for words. And that was very telling. Well, well, actually, he, on that, this was one of the things he wasn't lost for words on. He, he was like vehemently opposed to licensing right. front ends for email. And he gave this eloquent argument about how bad that would be. And he had no conception that like this is the same, the same argument, right? That you need to protect people you need to protect uh, consumers. You need to prevent terrorism, right? Like why are anonymous people allowed to send any messages across the world to any other person without it being registered with the central agency? Like, do you know how easy it is for terrorists to talk to each other through the email protocol? Um, why do we permit that? We, we permit that because that's how it's been since the, the mid nineties when this stuff was getting debated, but those arguments could have gone a different way. And, and you could have seen people argue, arguing for, licensure where like if you want a gmail account you have to provide kyc information that is no more ridiculous than someone needing to provide kyc information to manage their own money so yeah i was i was happy with that analogy too and i was glad it struck a chord um shifting gears a little bit i'm curious uh if any so we've talked a lot about we and then the general crypto twitter crypto community have talked a lot how in retrospect there were some red flags um, Hasib, I'm going to have a question for you a little bit about this in terms of on the venture end, why you saw some of those red flags, others didn't. Um, but just speaking broadly, um, I I'm curious, Binance, for example, which is now, it was already the biggest company in this space. Now it is even more <laughs> the biggest company in this space. Are, are there any reasons, uh, uh, I'm genuinely asking, to, to think that it is not, like, do we have any reason to think that it is not the same sort of a situation as an FTX? And if there is no reason... Um, yeah, what should people be doing? It, it's a broad question, I know, but um, I don't know. I don't see anybody unmuting. Anybody want to click the CC Hornets next? <laughs> sure, okay, I mean, let's see. Yeah, Thank I mean, look, <laughs> I don't think there's a lot of visibility to what's going on at Binance, but I will say that there's um, the situation at FTX was pretty exceptional, right? I mean, Sam was first a market maker and ran a 
you know, prop trading firm before he started FTX and FTX and Alameda always had this somewhat shadowy relationship from the beginning. That's not really true of Binance, right? Binance started as an exchange first and foremost. But the other thing about Binance that, that makes it more difficult to imagine they're doing the same kind of thing, putting their proof of reserves aside, which they were the first to kind of self-elect. Um, it's very obvious that Binance, the business, is incredibly, incredibly, incredibly profitable. And it's clear that that was not true of FTX. Last year, um, you know, the financials that FTX gave to their uh, prospective investors so that they made about $400 million last year and in net profit. Um, almost every single exchange that was of any size made over a billion dollars last year. Last year was the most incredible year in crypto history for trading fees. Uh, and the fact that FTX only made $400 million means that it actually wasn't that profitable of an exchange. They made much more money from Alameda. Alameda made billions last year, right? If you look at the um, the financials that they uh, submitted in the affidavit, it said they had over $13 billion in assets uh, as of the end of last year. Uh, th that's the estimate, anyway, that they produced. Um, and that's probably marking a bunch of stuff to crazy valuations, but whatever. Let's say it's, you know, the order five, six billion. Uh, clearly, Alameda made much more money than FTX did. And so you can see how their interests would be compromised. And uh, they clearly were when push came to shove and it was time to decide whether or not Sam was going to save Alameda or, or let Alameda die and, and, and have FTX go on, he made the wrong choice. Or at least that's the story that we're getting so far. Um, there, I, there's no reason in principle why you might think that's true for Binance. So I think, you know, it, it, again, Binance is not, it's, it, you know, it's a lightly regulated company based out of Dubai. Uh, they've got a ton of entities around the world. So we don't know what we don't know. But I, I don't think this is a, a good impetus for us to start suspecting that all exchanges are doing this because FTX is doing this. We, we shouldn't expect that all exchanges are doing this, but we should recognize that all centralized exchanges have counterparty risk. And if the, if the lesson here is, oh, we shouldn't have trusted FTX, we should have trusted Binance, that's the wrong lesson. Like, I, I think Binance is probably operating a legitimate business, but I'm not going to leave money on there. And if people are leaving lots of money on Binance over extended periods of time, not for trading, but just to use as a wallet, you are inviting this very problem. It doesn't have to be the exact same circumstances that cause a catastrophe. Each of these things rhymes, but they're not identical. Anyone who is leaving tons of money at a custodian is putting themselves at risk. And th this is the lesson that the crypto industry needs to learn. If you want to use a centralized exchange to trade, go for it. But don't leave your money there for extended periods of time. Like, how many more examples do you need? Like, also, Hasib, how do we even know, you know, uh, Binance is, you know, super profitable? Like, I mean, how do we know what their revenue numbers actually are? We're just trusting them to tell us. And, you know, if we've learned anything, like, you know, these centralized exchange operators, they can lie, you know, and it's like with DeFi, you can see exactly what, you know, what revenues are going because everything is fully transparent on chain. And I don't know, I just feel like there's been too much of like holding up CZ as the hero of the story right now when it's like, you know, sometimes there are no heroes and like CZ seems very like cocky and overconfident right now almost like mocking ftx but it's like you know ft spf was doing that was doing the same thing six months ago when like 3ac and celsius and stuff were going under their issues as well and i don't know i i just really hesitate and urge people not to take cockiness as a uh as a evidence of uh you know solvency <laughs> Yeah, so to be clear, I'm, I'm not saying that because CZ is going out dumping his chest that that means it's time to trust CZ. I think CZ has probably misplayed his hand here because, I mean, one, obviously, you know, killing FTX. FTX was a tiny player relative to Binance. Binance had something like 65% market share. Um, but, you know, while FTX was still alive, FTX is something like 5% market share. 
uh, and CZ toppling FTX has you know brought the entire crypto industry down another 20-25%. So this is not good for him, right? If, if this was his intention, uh, it was a stupid thing to do. But in addition to that, uh, he's now brought an enormous amount of regulatory eyeballs and attention onto his empire. And one way or another, people want somebody to blame, and Sam doesn't have the money, clearly. Uh, so who does? One one person who certainly has the money is CZ. So I, I think he's he's clearly consolidating right now. Um, and I, if I were him, I'd be very worried about what the next few years are going to hold with respect to the 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 you know the, the heat coming from regulators over the next couple of years. Um, but I, I also don't. I, I think it's a little bit hyperbolic to say that there's no good reason to think that Binance isn't lying to us about having money. Like it, it's it's pretty hard to fake. The, the scale of Binance. And of course, they do the BNB buybacks. You can see on chain all the volumes that are going there. Talk to market makers and see, you know, is the liquidity on Binance real? The answer for almost everybody, the answer is yes. Um, now, does that mean you should keep your money long-term on Binance? I wouldn't recommend it, and we don't. Um, but it's it's a very different thing to say, okay, we think Binance is the next FTX. Um, Hasib, actually, uh, to ask you a follow-up question. Uh, you, you called this, I forget on what podcast, it might have been Unchained. Um, you called it the largest failure, not just in crypto, uh, but in, in venture funding ever. Um, paraphrasing, of course. But I'm curious uh, why you personally didn't invest. And if you can talk a little bit about, if you have any insight into this, the due diligence or lack thereof that other funds have done that allow something like this to happen. Are people just you know, following the herd. I saw Suzu tweet, for example, recently where he was just like, oh, well, we assumed it was vetted. So we jumped in, um, which is not to start talking about Suzu. Anyway. Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty clear that that was the story for almost every venture capitalist. So, you know, judging from what John Ray is now, uh, you know, spelling out of the affidavit, they just had, you know, Mickey Mouse accounting end to end for every single entity that they had. There was no, there was no CFO. There was no board with any external oversight. Um, it was just a bunch of kids in the Bahamas, apparently screwing each other and just like, you know, slinging around ledgers from a Google sheet. And that kind of, I mean, uh, it, it's very clear now talking with a bunch of the other investors who were in FTX. So we never invested in FTX. We passed on every single one of their rounds. Um, and for us, you know, there's just the, the math and the relationship of, of Sam with his empire, like the way that they were doing all this, all this nonsense with Solana coins and, um, you know, launching Serum and then launching FTT and then launching Oxy and launching Maps. It just all really felt like this kind of bullshit. Um, you know, all these low FTV launchers just felt like a bullshit kind of money engine that didn't feel sustainable. And for a while, we felt really stupid, especially in 2021, when Sam was the top of the world and everything that he touched turned to gold. Uh, we were just like, wow, how did we, how did we get this wrong? We must have totally misunderstood how this thing could end up becoming self-sustaining. Um, and I think there were, there were there were a lot of things that that made one think that last year, um, but it, you know at the end of the day, the, the honest truth is we did not suspect that Sam was stealing money from FTX to go put it in the pocket of Alameda. Now almost everybody who looked at FTX, especially in the beginning, assumed that there was a special and unfair relationship between Alameda and FTX, and that's now been confirmed by John Ray in that affidavit that you know Alameda had a special relationship with FTX. Um, and everybody, it was, it was fairly obvious, right? If, if a market-making firm starts an exchange, probably there's something special going on there. Um, but the, 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 the extent of malfeasance, I think, surprised everybody, right? So for, for the most part, I think that 
the core of the story, like why did all these venture capitalists invest without doing more due diligence? The answer was that Sam was the guy. And when Sam was the guy and you wanted a piece of Sam, and the perception was that uh, this, this was the safest investment in crypto. A lot of the investors who invested into this thing, they don't do tokens. They don't invest into you know, real crypto native projects. And so they perceived as FTX being the safest thing they could invest into because it's an exchange rather than being a token. Uh, and Sam is just like really impressive guy. And he's on the cover of Forbes and he's getting on TV and he's in, you know, he bought the Miami Heat Stadium, uh, naming rights, blah, 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 blah. Uh, and uh, this, is, this is how that turns out. And so I don't know that the lesson is so much for consumers because at the end of the day, consumers, like there's no real way as a consumer for you to be able to diligence any centralized exchange. You just don't have the tools available to you. And to the extent that you can diligence them, it's like look up their financials, which is that, okay, they have a hundred, uh, what is it, $1.7 billion that they've raised in total capital. Uh, and they announced having over a billion dollars just sitting on the balance sheet. Like that, that's as much diligence as you can expect for a consumer to do on an exchange. I think the, the responsibility here lies on the venture capitalists that enable this whole thing and legitimized it. Thank you all for, for joining. Um, thank you, Chango, for, for getting this group together. Originally, I thought this was an awesome conversation and yeah, appreciate our audience. Sorry we couldn't bring speakers on, but um, we appreciated all your questions. I pulled from them over the course of the evening. Yeah, thanks everybody. Hope to do this again soon. Thanks, Sam. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.